Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. But while the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm talking with Elizabeth Letardo, Vice President at McLeod and Moore Incorporated. Elizabeth is the co-author of the book Selling with Noble Purpose: How to Drive Revenue and Do Work That Makes You Proud. As the VP of Services at Sales and Leadership Consultancy, McLeod and Moore, Elizabeth leads transformation initiatives for clients like Oracle, G Adventures, and Pfizer. She is a popular LinkedIn learning author, and her work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal and on NPR. Purpose is an interesting topic that's getting a lot of airtime now in companies across the country, but it can be a little bit nebulous and hard to define. In this conversation, Elizabeth really helps get our arms around what purpose means, how to build it into our workspaces, how to help individuals each find their own purpose and then harness them all together. Uh, She helps define it, talk about the ROI of a purposeful business, and uh, really is an interesting conversation that I think everyone can take something away from. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here is Elizabeth Letardo. And we are live. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm interested in diving into this because I've read so much about purpose in so many different places, but it's still sort of an elusive topic and it's kind of squishy and kind of tree huggery and it, you know, it just, it, it feels hard to define and, and hard to really put a business case around. And so I'm excited to sort of get into that today and, and see if we can get to the bottom of that, solve that problem. Well, that's my sweet spot. So hopefully over this conversation, you get a little more clear. Love it. Love it. Well, let's dive in then. How do you define purpose? The way we define purpose is purpose is the difference you make in the world why you do what you do, how are people different as a result of doing business with you. And I think the best way to understand purpose, if you're thinking about it in kind of a gauzy way, is to dive into some examples. So for example, our firm's purpose is to help leaders drive revenue and do work that makes them proud. We work with a commercial bank whose purpose is to fuel prosperity. We work with an IT company whose purpose is to help make small businesses more successful. So you can see the common pull through in all of those is the purpose is the impact that business makes on the clients they serve. Yeah. And so it's interesting because you think about the term, find your why, you know, Simon Sinek had the book, you know, starts with why and that Ted talk or that book has made the rounds. And a lot of people are thinking about that. And it's one thing to say like, oh, I want this because I want this much money, or I want these experiences or, or something for myself. But what you, what it sounds like you're describing is an out more of an outward focus. Is that true? 
Absolutely. I think an outward focus harnesses the best of who we are as people. As easy as it is to get into that self-serving mentality of wanting to hit a certain salary, wanting to make president's club, wanting to achieve a certain title in your organization, human beings are at our best when we focus on how we can make a difference to others. And the research shows that when we tap into that serving mindset, we're more creative, we make better decisions, and ultimately, we perform better in our roles. Okay. So let's unpack this a little bit because I got a bunch of questions on this. All right. So you gave us some great examples. That was going to be my next question anyways. Can you give us some examples? So you, you beat me to that punch. But how is what you described, how is that purpose different from like a mission statement or a vision statement? Or isn't it? Is it the same thing? Good question. You know, words only mean what we think they mean. And and people apply that lump of terms, why, purpose, mission, vision, you know, our corporate statement to a lot of different things. And to me, I use the word purpose because I believe it is the organization's purpose in this world. You could use the word mission, but what's important, regardless of the term you apply to it, is that you have a unifying North Star in an organization. You are collectively aligned around the difference you are trying to make in the world. Whether you call that a purpose, whether you call it a why, whether you call it a mission, that's not as important as the clarity around that statement is. And how do you get clarity around that statement? Like who should have clarity around that statement? Everyone in the organization should have clarity around that statement, ideally. And the best place to get clarity is with your customers. A lot of times organizations become especially as they get larger, removed from the direct impact they're having on customers. So if you speak with your customers and assuming you have customers who are buying from you, you do have a purpose or they wouldn't be buying from you. If you speak with your customers about the impact you're making on their businesses, about why they continue to do business with you, you will start to see the foundation of that purpose form. And on a lot of cases, the tactics of day-to-day business take us out of that and, and put us in this headspace of the transactional, the daily to-do the to-do list. But when you speak with customers about these larger issues, the needles you're moving in their lives and businesses, it becomes really clear that all of those actions are in service of something much greater. So do you see your clients talking to their clients? So do you see companies talking to their clients just anecdotally one-off and then bringing that feedback back? Or do you see them doing surveys? Or is it a formal thing? Or is it just, let's go have some conversations with our clients and then bring that back. And as an executive team, we can sort of ruminate on what our broader purpose should be. Contrary to what my researcher self would be inclined to do, the anecdotal feedback is much more valuable. I'm sure you've gotten the same slew of emails that I have, which is, how did we do? Would you recommend us? What would we change? How can we do better? And those emails hardly ever generate actual constructive feedback. Nonetheless, an entire viewpoint of how you change that customer. The anecdotal conversations are where you really see that come to life. And I think organizations put a lot of pressure on themselves to find the perfect words and to capture every single thing that every customer said. But what's important here is capturing the spirit, the spirit of the impact you're making. And it doesn't have to be the sexiest marketing slogan. Like I said, when we first started, we work with an IT company whose purpose is to help make small businesses more successful. It's hardly differentiated and it doesn't involve any cool words, but it is an accurate unifying cry for their organization organization. And it's what they point their people towards every day. How do they do that? How do they point their people? 
Like, what does that internal process then look like once you've defined your value or your mission or your purpose? So I said earlier in our conversation, business pulls us to the day-to-day tactics, the to-do list, the things we got to get done, the metrics we have to hit. Leaders who want to foster a more purpose-driven business, who want to make their employees feel this sense of connectedness and pride, can still get that work done and done even more effectively if they add some context to why that work is happening. And this is, it gets more important the larger the organization becomes. Adding context to what someone is doing allows them to see how their piece fits in this larger, more important puzzle. So we'll go back to our IT company whose purpose is to make small businesses more successful. If their leadership team is talking to an accountant on their team, they can connect what that accountant is doing to the purpose of making small businesses more successful with just one simple bridge sentence saying something like, you know, your ability to process these invoices on time, make sure our customers get to go home at the end of the day. And we know that making small businesses more successful means giving them time with their families too. So taking that tactical piece and connecting it just again with one sentence to the ripple effect and how that piece fits in the context of this larger purpose can do wonders on people's emotional engagement. And what do you say to people who are like, yeah, that sounds nice, but it just sounds a little too fluffy for our culture? I can definitely empathize with that, especially if you've been brought up in sort of a rough and tough, scrappy business. What I'll tell you is that the research is on the side of purpose with this. We have indisputable evidence that no matter how rough and tough people may be, every person intrinsically wants belonging and significance. We want to be connected to something larger than ourselves, and we want to know that our part matters. So bringing purpose into your business doesn't require some heartfelt, you know, crying speech. It can be done in a really authentic way and just helping people see that their work is truly moving the needle in a way that matters. And we know that when people feel that way, they're more productive, they're more creative, they're more engaged, and they stay with their organizations longer. You know, it's interesting. Have you read Extreme Ownership? Yes. I think it's on my bookshelf, which you can see behind me. Imagine if you're listening. There you go. So I'm a fan of that. I I have that book in my office and I've talked about it a couple of times on here and I've actually had somebody from that organization on the, on the podcast, Mike Sorelli. And I've watched a bunch of Jocko and Leif Babin, who are the authors of that book. I've watched a couple of their videos and they talk about this. And these are two guys who are as macho, badass commando Navy SEALs as you can get. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things that that I've heard Jocko come back to a bunch and he comes back to in that book a number of times is telling your people why, explaining the mission to them, and then helping them understand their role in the mission. And to me, you're sort of coming at it with, oh, it's this higher purpose and you connect to this and you get all these better outcomes. And then you've got him saying th- essentially the same thing from an organization that has very little fluff. Right in it, you know, and it's the principle applies the same way. And so I, I do think that that is important. Do you have any examples of people who may be, maybe clients of yours that are a little more like the macho alpha, you know, driven, no BS cultures who have been able to adopt purpose? Absolutely. So we've worked with a construction firm out of Omaha, Nebraska called Support Work. 
works. So if you have ever experienced a big rain and had that rain leak into your foundation of your house, that's the problem they fixed. And they have some patented technology that allows them to do that. They are a rough and tough business. They are under houses every day, shoring up walls. Their labor is very physically demanding on their teams. And they have a lot of moving parts. They have to make the product. They work in warehouses. They do a lot on the commercial side. So nowhere in this business did there seem to be room for a Care Bear conversation, right? These are predominantly (laughs) men. They tend to be high school educated or have some technical training. They didn't spend a lot of time in ivory towers, you know, contemplating the meaning of life. But what they found is that when they brought this purpose to the fore in a really authentic way, they still latched onto it. And they gave these folks a tool that made it a little less scary on the vulnerability front called purpose citations. So they arm their leaders with notepads that you could tear off a piece of paper and on the notepad had a series of checks that you could check off. that related to the purpose they were trying to instill. And their purpose was to redefine their industry. Contractors have a terrible reputation and they knew they wanted to be different. So instead of putting the entire onus on their leadership team to say, hey, you know, wear your heart on your sleeve and tell them how you really feel, they gave them a tool to do that where they didn't have to find the perfect words. They could check things off, add a little, you know, descriptor and hand that to the employee. And that was sort of that middle step between a a culture that can be very tactical and something that is truly purpose-driven. So I think as organizations look towards that purpose-driven model, many, you're right, are afraid, like we're a rough and tough business. We're scrappy people. We don't have time to have these big drawn out emotional sagas. Know that there are things you can do to help your teammates make that leap and make this gauzy topic called purpose come really alive in the face of day-to-day business. And do you recall what their specific purpose was? So their purpose, they say, is to redefine the industry. They did a lot of talking with their customers and found that the most important thing that they were offering was peace of mind in their homes and that no other contractor could come close to the level of service, the level of purpose, and the level of quality work that they were providing. So they really rallied around this redefined concept. And on their purpose citations is what they call them, almost like a ticket, they have lots of behaviors that they've identified contribute to that larger purpose, like showing a teammate why their work matters and like telling a customer that their home will be safe for 100 years to come, all of these small things that play into that. And so if it's okay to dive into that example a little bit, because I think it's, I think it can be helpful to take the more extreme examples where it worked and explore those. Who was involved in building their purpose? Was it just the executive team or did they tap into employees? How did that work? So they started with the executive team talking with their customers, which is how we started this conversation, the importance of getting customer feedback. They also solicited a lot of feedback from their employees. Why do you work here? From seasoned employees, why did you continue to stay? And a small group started to pull together some words that were then circulated throughout the organization. And I think what played out with them and what plays out with a lot of organizations is that purpose is putting words to who you are on your best day. It's not a marketing slogan. It's not some catchy thing that you're going to use for recruiting. It's an articulation of who you are. So when you articulate that well and you're a 
effective in sourcing all of those inputs, it tends to land really well with employees and ultimately land really well with customers. So it say that one more time. Your purpose is articulating who you are on your best day. Right. So on my best day, I'm helping leaders drive revenue and do work that makes them proud. I have days when I'm distracted and I don't fulfill that purpose all the way, but that's who I am on my best day. And on their best day, they're redefining their industry. And on uh, this commercial bank that I mentioned earlier, their best day, they're fueling prosperity. So on your best day, what is the biggest impact you're having? How do you deal with that becoming aspirational? And something that really they're not living up to mm-hmm. versus something that is really them on their best day, that it's, it's something that they can actually deliver on consistently. I definitely think there's a danger of going too aspirational. We don't want to paint a picture of who we are on our single best day of a decade and yeah. try to work there, work there on a consistent basis. Pretend that that's who you are We're all the time. It, right. We're talking about the majority of days here. So it's important to strike a balance between something that can be really aspirational, like redefining an industry, and something that can be tactical. And I would say redefining can happen in these micro moments throughout the day. So we don't want to paint a picture of where, you know, the creators of world peace, because we know that's pretty far away from being done. But we could say we bring peace into the world, which can be done on a daily basis through a series of small actions. So that's a good question. We want to make sure our purpose is really obtainable by every employee on every day. And how do organizations then hold themselves accountable to those statements? I think that is something that many organizations miss. One of my favorite examples is Enron at one point had their uh, their values etched in stone in their marble lobby because they were so important. And the first one was integrity. And yes. we all know how that played out. I have, I have heard that story before. Yeah. We've seen organizations in more recent times, you know, fall into the same trap. Think Wells Fargo, Volkswagen, organizations who proclaimed widely to be very purpose-driven and then identified behavior as isolated or not that did not fall in line with that. And one of the things that I think is effective about purpose is it does not always make your decisions easy, but it does make them clear. And purpose can be a guardrail for decision-making, for daily behavior, that these ethereal values and be a good person and strategic plans simply cannot provide. Yeah, you actually have to use it. Right, on a daily basis. So, So how are you working it into performance management? Are people evaluated on how they're fulfilling the purpose? How do you tie metrics to your purpose? How do you measure redefining an industry? How do you measure fueling prosperity? It tends to be a messier, more creative conversation, but it's one we know generates results in the long term. Do you, in your work, then help them integrate that purpose into various elements of their actual day-to-day behaviors? Yes. And what does that look like? Because that's, that's where the rubber meets the road in this, right? Like that's the work that really needs to happen. Even if I feel like you could have the most glorious purpose in the world and totally have it be useless, or you could have kind of a mediocre purpose and have it really help your organization. And the difference is just how you're integrating it into the actual fabric of your actions as a company. 
Absolutely. So I think leadership, particularly that frontline leadership, plays the most important role in this conversation. And their ability to, like I said, connect the task of the department, the team, to that higher purpose and hold people accountable to when they may be struggling to live by that higher purpose, when they may be falling into a transactional mindset, when they might be emotionally pulling back from the business. So leadership certainly has a role to play too. But I think as employees, making sure that the expectation is set from the start, that employees take responsibility of living those values, of calling each other out when they're not living you know, the purpose, the mission, the values, of calling leadership out and having a culture where you can freely have that discussion without fear of horrific repercussions. I was just thinking about that because what you just described is psychological safety. Yes. Which is a term that's come up on this podcast a, a bunch and is something that to me, seems to be critically important to a really healthy, high-performance organization. Mm -hmm. So if psychological safety is one element that you see as a key to success, are there any other core elements or principles that you see your clients share when this is done right? Like they all, they all, they're all purpose-driven, but then they all create environments of psychological safety. They all do I don't know, fill in the blank. Are there any other principles that you see among the cultures or leadership styles of these organizations? That's an interesting question. I think the organizations who are gravitating towards purpose are usually doing a lot of things right to begin with. Otherwise, it wouldn't be appealing to them. They have created psychologically safe environments. They champion diversity and inclusion and recognize that people are better when they come together. And they create employee experiences and experiences with their customers that are fair and just, recognizing that supply chains and things like philanthropic giving come into play. So I don't necessarily think there are a lot of elements of being purpose-driven. I think there are a lot of elements of being a good organization and an organization that's an upstanding pillar of a community and being purpose-driven is one of those elements, among others, like you mentioned, psychological safety, diversity, inclusion, things like that. So if an organization, let's say an organization does some of this work, they put their purpose together, they use it to evaluate employees. How do you get employees to align with that? Because every one of us, I was actually having this conversation with our CEO the other day, and we were talking about this. And one of the questions that came up is like, well, everybody has their own purpose and everybody wants something a little bit different. And so how do you have one overarching purpose for your business and then allow your people to express their own purpose in that work? So allowing for an organizational purpose, I think, has the the capability of knitting everyone together. But you're right. People have their own individual purposes and people have different strengths that they show up to work with and different ways they want to make a difference. And allowing people that space is important. Otherwise, we're going to create a lot of me too's, not me too's in the sexual harassment, <laughs> sense, but me, me too in the sense that I am also doing the same thing as you as the same thing as another department. And we're all this sort of uniform group working towards this organizational goal, which we know isn't as effective as a group of people who are engaged in their own ways. So I think allowing the space for people to make a sight line to the organizational purpose based on their own individual purpose. For example, say my purpose is to champion the enthusiasm in others. I do that by 
creating great training programs for leaders to do the same with their team and that nest under our organizational purpose. So whether people have individual purpose statements or not, I do think that there is huge merit in allowing space for employees to explore how their role connects directly to the organization, how the way they do their job, whether they're great communicators, innovative thinkers, you know, super organized, how their individual strengths connect to the organizational purpose and making sure that they really see themselves in that. Because we've seen tons of organizations cascade down these purpose-driven messages. And by the time it gets to a front-level employee, it feels more like a mandate than a higher calling. So making sure that people have the time to emotionally connect and the tools to do that and have those conversations with their peers and with their leaders. Should they be concerned at all? Should leaders be concerned at all? about people not buying into the purpose and leaving the organization? Yeah, they should be concerned about that. And I think in some ways, that's a good thing. If you are having mass departure after you roll out an organizational purpose, it probably means that people do not believe you're actually living that. And that can go back to some of the things we talked about of being incongruent with actions. If you say your purpose is to fuel prosperity, but you you know hoard all these things offshore or something, people are going to read you as rather inauthentic. So you see those departures more as just as your own lack of integrity to, to stand up to those values or principles rather right. than people being like, yeah, you want to go solve this problem. I don't really care about that problem. I'm going to go somewhere else. That can certainly happen. And what I would suggest is a little bit of that is okay. So going back to the first point of mass departure, people feeling like there's no way I'm all in for that means your purpose is either really just not nice and actually not impacting the world in a positive way, or your decisions aren't lining up with that. There was a great piece that came out of EY I think a couple of months ago called Is Your Purpose Lectured or Lived? That focused on mm. that very topic of are you telling people you're purpose driven or are you actually making decisions that prove it? But uh, on the second point, individual departures, I do think are necessary to some degree. And if you are clear as an organization, hey, this is our higher purpose, and you know that higher purpose will deliver and the market will land with the vast majority of employees, is truthful with your customers, some departure is okay. And I would ask leaders who are, who are potentially afraid of that departure, what's the flip side? Someone who doesn't believe in what you're doing staying in their role for 15 years? That's not very productive either. It's just tough if that person is tied to a lot of revenue. Yes. That's where this becomes And that tough. goes to that, that initial point of, is your purpose lectured or lived? If you really mean it, your decisions might not be easy, but they are clear. And I know organizations, especially at this time, are really pushed for revenue. And I'm in no way suggesting that this is a light switch you flip on. Yeah. But if over the next 12 to 24 months, you start to see talent in your organization that is not in line with your purpose, that doesn't believe what you believe, that talent, no matter how much they are bringing in, will cause you more pain in the long term. There was some great research on that called the no asshole rule from Adam Grant. Yes. And, you know, I, that's a good point, too, about this doesn't need to be a light switch because, you know, we've gone through this in some leadership work that, that we do in our organization. And, you know, we had identified some people that either needed to up their game or, you know, take their game somewhere else. And 
it wasn't just, oh, we need to fire all these people, which I think is the fear. It was the fear that was expressed in our group. You know, well, oh, well, we can't, we can't just let go of all these people. It's like, well, no, of course not. Like, you're not just going to fire all these people. And it was kind of like, well, of course not. But you still have to say that. Like, there's still that fear there that like, well, we can't do that because we can't just, you know, let all this revenue walk out the door or let all these people walk out the door. Then nobody would be here to service our clients. But that doesn't mean you can't be planning for it or be slowly moving in that direction and figuring out the first one or two or three people that maybe do need to be replaced and starting to backfill their positions while they're still doing the job. And there's like, there's a process that you can be putting in place to doing that. And I think we, I've just seen it anecdotally in our organization that we have, we started that conversation about two or three years ago. And since then, we've had a couple people decide that they did want to re-engage and they've stepped up their performance. We've had a couple people decide mm-hmm. that it was time to retire and that they had a good run, but they didn't want to adapt in the way that they were being asked to adapt. And, you know, it was probably the end of their career, which was not a bad thing in any way, but was the right step for them. And then we've had a few people that, you know, we did wind up letting go, but that was okay too, because we had planned for it. And so I think that's just a really good point. And I've seen that become a bottleneck to people making any change at all because they think it has to be all at once. Absolutely. And I think that first group of people you mentioned, people who did ultimately get on board, I've seen several organizations work, you know, backstage for months and months and months on crafting the perfect purpose and making this great activation plan and giving all this training. And they're surprised when people don't immediately love it. (laughs) And what they forget is that it took them some time to attach to it too. So leaving that space for people to come to it to change. We don't know what's in people's hearts unless they tell us. And to express that vulnerability is really important. You cannot decide to be purpose-driven and, you know, anyone who doesn't raise your hand, you're out tomorrow. That is not going to be helpful for you in the long run. Purpose is a journey. Yeah. You know, I had a guest on, a woman named Jennifer Fondrevay, and she talked about the human side of mergers and acquisitions. And it was, she talked about this exact same thing, about how the people who are making the decisions in the merger come up with these great solutions and then they fail. And it's not because they were bad solutions, but it's because they didn't realize or give credence to how long it took them to adopt those things. Plus they had control of it, right? Which adds an element too. So it was something they had control over. They took a certain amount of time to get used to it. And then they rolled it out and expected people to be like, oh, this is great. Not realizing that people needed to get used to it themselves too. Exactly. And that people need time to learn and explore and connect. It's like if you go to a day-long workshop on gratitude and you come home on fire, you got your gratitude journal and you're super pumped. If you go meet your spouse and say, tell me 10 things you're grateful for right now, you're not going to be met with great enthusiasm. It's slowly introducing people and giving them time and space to connect to it on their own. I think anybody who has ever come home enthusiastic about some personal change and tried to co-opt a significant other into taking the journey with them right away has has experienced that you know exactly how that works right on both sides too how would it feel to work this huge long day to have no inspirational talks on gratitude explore none of the research on gratitude not even think about gratitude and have someone walk into the door and say tell me 10 things you're grateful for you've got to be grateful it's going to help you you and organizations right there's something wrong with you you need to be more grateful it's like whoa wait 
Right. And you're like, I'm sorry. Like I was just grocery. Yeah. Shopping. I've probably been guilty of doing that to my wife on more than one occasion, not just with gratitude, but everyone's guilty yeah. of it because we get excited about it and we forget where we started. Yes, that's a good point. I need to remember that from time to time. I, you know, I do a lot of these conversations and, and I'm, I have a lot of these conversations outside of recorded podcasts. And I just, I'm kind of always interested in these people dynamics and how you can be better and different things that you could try. And so I'm often bringing things home and being like, oh man, all this great stuff. And, you know, I get the polite smile and like, that's lovely, honey. And, you know, the figurative pat on the head, you know, off I go. I've learned to just do my thing. And then if it works for me, the people around me will see that and then they'll start to live it themselves maybe, or, or they'll maybe start to be changed by it in some positive way rather than me trying to force it on them. And I think that applies to companies too, that the best thing you can do as a leader, if you've just defined your purpose, is go out and live that purpose every day and let the people in your immediate sphere know that that, that your behavior is different because of this reason. And don't expect anything from them, just live it yourself so strongly and committed. And then eventually people are going to start to gravitate to, you You know, like energy is contagious. And so people will start to get that. It just takes some time. Absolutely. And the saying, it just takes some time is really frustrating for a leader. A lot of times I say that, and I will admit that that is difficult for me to do, but I recognize that that's the right thing. A lot of employees aren't as nice as your wife and don't give their leader, you know, metaphorical pats on the head. They just say, F you, like that doesn't make any sense to me. So I do think as leaders start to embrace this purpose conversation, it is worth noting it will not be all sunshine and rainbows. As inspirational and personal as purpose can be, it is a business decision. And like all business decisions, it takes careful planning and overcoming a couple roadblocks. Yeah. Well, so let's, let's explore that because that was a question I had earlier in my head come up. When somebody does this work, how much change should they expect to have to go through personally when it's all done? That's a tough question to answer because I think it's so dependent on the starting place. An organization or or even an individual leader, if we want to go the personal route, who's kind of already thinking this way and maybe didn't have concrete words around it, who was really authentically connecting with customers, but maybe didn't phrase it in a noble purpose way, they're not going to experience a 180 shift. They're going to experience an easier time talking about what was already in their heart and a more authentic way to connect on that instead of falling into the tactics of day-to-day business. So that shift is not tremendous. It's an up-leveling of something that was already really strong. If an organization drills in nothing but metrics, there is no higher calling, people don't talk about themselves or their feelings, the change is going to be pretty substantial. So I think it's all about where you're starting. But I, to go back to our earlier point, this is a journey. You know, this is not a light switch that you're flipping. This is not a workshop that you're giving. Creating a purpose-driven business is the sum of thousands of small actions you take every day and thousands of conversations you're going to have. So recognizing that there is going to be some tough work involved. It's going to take time, but There's a a Chinese proverb that I think is really pertinent to this that says the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the second best time is today. So if you're listening to this conversation thinking, oh, I'm so behind the eight ball, like we're totally screwed. How on earth am I going to do this? Know that you can start to make progress today. Yeah, I love that sentiment. 
and it's just so it's a way to get through the the guilt of not having started 20 years ago. Right. And the thing is, you probably were doing other important stuff 20 years ago too. We weren't all sitting around here picking our noses. You were building a business and making, you know, hires and creating strategic plans and all of that's really important. And it got you to where you are. But I think the question that a lot of leaders and employees are asking now is what's going to take me to where I need to be in this new environment? So let's continue down the change management path if you'll take the journey with me. Let's say you're a company that has been very metrics-based and you want to switch to more purpose. Not that you should give up your metrics, but you want to create some more purpose or some more meaning in the work. But that's going to be a big shift for a lot of people. What does that change management look like? Like, Do you suggest ripping off the Band-Aid and having the leadership suddenly start living their new values at 100% or is there another approach that you see working more effectively? I certainly think another approach. I don't want any uh, employee to have a ripping off the Band-Aid experience consistently at their work. What I would say to an organization who maybe is on the more transactional side, and again, I'm a firm believer in metrics. We have metrics in our own business. We support metrics with our clients. In fact, we often add more metrics as it relates to their purpose rather than the traditional balance sheet metrics. If your organization falls into that camp, there is one thing you can do really quickly that will start to move the needle. If you are going through a metric, we'll say customer acquisition, we acquired 3,500 new customers this year. Let me tell you a story about one of them. One of those customers was this real person in this real business, and here's what they said, and here's the difference we made on them. And the other numbers that I'm showing you are people and businesses just like that. That is like a 60-second way to add some purpose to what could very easily be a very tactical conversation. So as organizations go on the, the change management journey, that's a great starting place, layering on this purpose and meaning to conversations you're already having and metrics you're already reporting on. That is often of a great relief to financially motivated or financially minded people or people who gravitate to the really quantitative side of business, that none of that's going anywhere. Don't worry. We're just going to add some meaning on top of it and explain what those numbers really mean, because that's the truth. Every customer acquired is someone's life and business you're going to change. Yeah. I'm glad that you corrected my all-in approach, because I was having a conversation this morning with a gentleman that I mentor who does my job and does it well, but just hasn't been with our organization for very long. And so I'm, I'm sort of helping him along. And he's going through another training program that we offer. And he got hit with some feedback and some assessments that were the same thing that he had heard from me and the same thing that he had heard from somebody else. And it finally, you know, shed some light on a blind spot of his. And there were some things that he needed to change. But one of his weaknesses is that he can take on too much and try to do too many things and completion can be a problem. And so the thing that we talked through this morning is whether that's your issue or not, it's still, I believe, is better to achieve small victories one at a time and let them build into some new, big, great thing rather than try to figure out everything that needs to be done and wholesale flip the switch allow yourself to build the momentum of success. 
And let's be real. It is 2020. It has been a year. Who in this world is of a mindset where they would be so enthusiastic about this giant organizational change? People are tired. Start small. Instead of rolling out this massive grand plan to 180 your organization, tell someone why their work matters. Add some context to an existing organizational metric. Share a story about a customer who you made a difference for. All of those small things were start to build momentum and you'll have the wind at your back when you want to do bigger things. I love that. Yeah. Build the momentum. That's great. So shifting gears here, because I, I do want to have part of this, a good part of this conversation be on how to make this tangible. And there's very little as tangible as new revenue sales. How do you help sales teams to either define that purpose or, or take that purpose from the organization? and use that to actually create more opportunities for themselves that turn into real dollars. So especially now, sales teams are challenged with engaging with customers on a level that isn't tactical. People don't have the mental space for strategic conversations. Strategic landscapes are changing very quickly. So if you are a salesperson, identify that big impact you have on customers. And again, this isn't we can take your note, your account receivable from 5% to 10% or we can save you, you know, 4% of cost on whatever. I don't know what people do. But having that big picture impact. We're saving you time so we can go home to our families. We are making sure you have the talent you're going to need to grow your business. We are making sure that you can you know, save money and invest in innovation, those big picture things, and start having conversations about that. Because while the landscapes are changing, people still have big goals. People are still making strategic plans. And when you can connect to those high-level issues, you're more likely to forge a lasting relationship because we know that the specs of deals are changing on a daily basis. These tactical things are constantly moving. You have to connect to something greater. And the more clearly you can identify impact you have on customers, your noble purpose, the more likely you can use that in a discovery conversation to have a much more strategic conversation. How do you see buyers reacting to those conversations versus a more traditional tactics conversation? There was some interesting data released by Salesforce this year. They do a state of sales report every year. And this year, the number one thing business buyers wanted in salespeople was a trusted advisor who actually adds value to their business. And I would say to do that, you kind of have to have an idea of how your product fits and why it's important from a strategic level. So from a... uh, a research standpoint, the research backs up that organizations, business buyers specifically, are looking for those trusted advisors. But the flip side of that is only 3% of organi- or of people trust salespeople. So we're going in with a bad reputation of being too yeah. bitchy, being too inwardly focused, being salespeople too tactical. Are terrible. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I am too. I say all the time. I'm like, look, I hate salespeople. <laughs> so I understand where you're coming yeah. from. I think I think a salesperson's biggest hurdle is being a salesperson. Exactly. And it was heartbreaking to see that only 3% of people consider sales a trustworthy profession. Only a profession that was lower was politicians, which is kind of even more disheartening. But either way, it definitely lays the case for having those important high-level conversations and to tying yourself to strategic impact beyond the specs of your product. When you talk about the Salesforce data, I like that. But that, to me, sort of tells me two things which is one, to your point, they have to be able to 
connect to the higher impact that they're having. But it also tells me that, that they have to have a real higher impact. And I think that gets lost sometimes too with salespeople where you go in and it's all pie in the sky, isn't this great? And there's not as much meat on the bone, you know, all sizzle, no steak to repeat a phrase I've heard a few times lately. Yeah. Like every SaaS company ever for their first two years, right? Yeah. And so I, I think there's a balance to this too, right? Where purpose is great, but it only gets you so far and the metrics and the technical expertise are great, but it only brings it, you know, it only motivates so many buyers. And so it's the meeting of those two points where you really bring a strong set of technical expertise and then you are communicating it and tying it to real emotional impacts for people you know the broader vision that they have or the the personal issues that they're struggling with in terms of like not getting home you know being worked too hard and not getting home on time so it to me it's, it's the blend of those two would you disagree with that agree with that I absolutely agree with that. I think the technical expertise is the foundation you have to have to be a successful salesperson. No matter how comprehensively you understand someone's strategic objectives, no matter how great they feel after talking to you, if you can't deliver, you're not getting the deal. And if you do somehow get it, you shouldn't yeah, have it. You'll be fired because it's not going to end yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's table stakes. But what purpose can do is put all of that again in context and allow that technical expertise to be of service for something beyond a purchasing requirement. Be the best you can be. And then this allows you to go out and tell a better story. It does. It's not a shortcut for not being as good at your job. Yeah. If you, uh, I should put an asterisk on the cover of the book. If you don't know anything about your product or your product doesn't work, this isn't going to be effective for you. Well, I, I, you know, I, it may seem like a no duh, but I do think that some people spend too much time on the purpose and the story and it doesn't, you know, there's no stake, right? It sounds good, but there's mm-hmm. nothing really behind it. And buyers are going to test you, right? They're going to poke oh, yeah. some holes and they're going to see whether or not you really got the goods. And so I just, I think it's worth reiterating. Absolutely worth reiterating. And of course, no one's product or service is perfect. Everyone has mistakes. Everyone has ways they can improve. But to your point, adding the steak and not just the sizzle is really important. An effective way to do that that I've found marries both the tactical and the expertise as well as the purpose and the strategic vision is to include some really impact-focused customer testimonials because that takes you off of the defensive and says, hey, I move the needle on these other people's big strategic initiatives, I can do the same for you. So you're not having to go through every element of your technical expertise, but yeah. you are. And, and one note there. on, to your point about not everybody's perfect. There is actual data out there that shows that if you admit the things that you do wrong or your imperfections, you actually build more trust. Of course. Yeah. Well, you, you say, of course, but that's not, and, I don't, that's not an I, of course, think, because yeah. Well, it's not an of course in business, but what I've seen so often is things come out exactly like that where you're like, well, duh, think about it in a personal relationship. Like if you're always trying to be this perfect person and you never show any vulnerability, no one's really going to want to connect. Yeah, because nobody feels like you're real. Right. And what we're seeing now is that surprise when people, the people who express those emotions come together, businesses express those emotions too. And businesses are challenged with expressing vulnerability and admitting the things that they aren't doing well. Do you see purpose 
as a benefit in that regard of being able to define the things that you don't do, not necessarily that you don't do well, but just helping you set some boundaries for things that you want to focus on and things that you don't want to focus on. Certainly. It's definitely a filter when it comes to prioritizing what's going to move the needle most on your ability to make small businesses more successful, redefine an industry, fuel prosperity. So that lens can help you suss out what's important and what's not, what's urgent and what can wait. I think too, it definitely can shine light on some areas of weakness or areas that need some growth that you may have missed before. And that's like, if you have a purpose to make money all the time, you're going to look at a lot of metrics and you're going to say, how can I shore up revenue? How can I cut cost? But you may be missing that no one's engaged. And if you had a higher purpose, you could see that more clearly. So I certainly think that purpose has the capability to not only help leaders prioritize what's important and what's not, but has the additional capability of shining light on some things that matter that can be overlooked if you're operating business in a typically transactional way. Do you have data to show the impact of this type of selling on some other type of selling? Absolutely. So we have our own research from Selling with Noble Purpose, which proved that people who believe in their heart that they are making an impact on someone outsell people who believe in their heart their purpose is to deliver on quota. And that was through a series of qualitative interviews compared to quantitative results from a biomedical firm. There's also some research that just came out from Michigan State University that studied purpose as it relates to sales. And what this data found that was so interesting to me and so timely was that people who truly believe they were in sales to improve others, to make a difference in lives and businesses, demonstrated greater tenacity and greater resilience in the face of a challenge. Challenge. So they were not as dissuaded by initial objections and they were more steadfast in their ability to, you know, rally themselves after something goes wrong. And when we think about 2020 going into 2021, those two things, resilience and tenacity, are things that sales teams, no matter what you're selling, are going to need. So the quantitative data is absolutely there, but I would say it it echoes what we know in our own hearts. When you're fully bought into something, you're going to care more. You're going to go the extra mile. You're going to be more authentically yourself and curious and and all of the things that make a great salesperson that so many programs try to teach. I just firmly believe that the mindset with which you walk into a conversation dictates most of the success of that conversation. Because walking in trying to help somebody, really trying to help somebody, not just help them by selling them your product, but to try to find ways to add value to them and help them is different. Even if you say all the same words, than walking in with the mindset of, I want to see if this person's interested in buying this thing. So true. And what we see organizations do is say, okay, well, I'm going to train our sales team on body language and I'm going to train them on tone of voice and I'm going to train them on asking questions. And it's a lot easier to just put the right intention in their heart versus worrying about how to control their subconscious. Yeah, that's true. You have to, rather than train the conscious to override the subconscious, just train the subconscious to be doing a better job. Right. We cannot, no matter how body language classes we go to, how many tone of voice questioning workshops we go to, we cannot operate authentically if what's in our subconscious is not there. And no matter how how much we apply those skills, 
our subconscious will always leak out in ways we cannot pinpoint. So it's much more effective and uh, it, much more nice to your employees to just actually fill them with pride and the recognition that their work is making a difference. Yeah. You know, I talk about this with some of our newer salespeople all the time where, because we, we talk about being detached from the outcome and being abundant. And the truth is that we have a pretty high pressure sales model. We work on a recoverable draw, meaning that if they work for a year and a half and it doesn't work out, they owe all the money back that they were paid. So it's a high risk model. You, you need those deals. Mm-hmm. And so to be abundant and be detached when you don't have any revenue coming in is a very tall ask. And so that, you know, my thinking on this is, you know, I've been doing what I do for 11 and a half year now, years now, I'm in a fairly stable place, but I still go and I, I'll, you know, I get a deal and we get close to the finish line. Like I get, I'm really interested and attached to that deal. But I think the key is that in, when you're talking to that person, when you're in the moment, you're there to help and you acknowledge like, yes, I would like this deal, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take that hat off and I'm gonna be here to help. And then when I go home over the weekend, I'm gonna have a nervous breakdown because I'm gonna be so attached and I really want it, but I'm not gonna gonna do any damage in my apartment by myself by being attached. When I'm with the person, I'm going to live up to my higher purpose. I'm going to, you know, have the right attitude here. I'm gonna be, I think the right attitude is curious and helpful. I agree. You walk into every situation, just really curious about the other person and curious to find ways to help them, you're going to sell a bunch of of business. Even if it's not that business, you're going to overall sell more. Of course. And human beings are imperfect. I wrote the book Selling with Noble Purpose, and I still have days where I have to remind myself of commissions and when I have to calm myself down when things don't go well. This is something that everyone works towards, not some you know state of enlightenment that we all hope to achieve. Yeah, this isn't day. Siddhartha where you you know, the Buddha. Right. There, there is no completion of this. It is a, a constant work in progress on your brain, but the more you do it, the easier it becomes. True. I, I believe that. Is there anything, any other major points that we missed on purpose? I feel like we've really torn this one apart, which was the point. And I, it's been a great conversation. Is there anything that we've missed? Well, I hope you're starting this, or I guess uh, ending this conversation with more enthusiasm and clarity than where we started on this gauzy topic of purpose. Well, for sure. I don't think there's anything we missed. I would say that one thing I really want to make sure people see is that purpose, of course, is effective on an organizational wide level, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can do this by yourself and choosing to see your own work differently. You can do this if you lead a small team and making a commitment that impact is going to be the driving force of your team. And you don't have to wait for everything to be perfect to start that. I love that. And while we will definitely link to your books, Selling with Noble Purpose, and I believe there's Leading with Noble Purpose too, correct? There is. I am not an author on that one, but I, I guess I'm biased, but I'll so say So we'll, we'll plug <laughs> those two, but there's also a great book from Seth Godin called Lynchpin, which talks about this and about, you know, there's a great example in there about a hospital janitor who was so committed to the health, improving the health and the healthcare experience of the patients of that hospital that they became, you know, one of the cornerstones and actually had a major impact on the whole organization just because they bought into their janitor job in a way that most people would not. So that's a great book too, is Lynchpin. It's the power of purpose. Yeah. What are you sick of talking about? Hmm. 
I think when it's all going to go back to normal, if I hear that phrase again, I'm truly going to lose it because I think what a lot of people aren't recognizing is it's never going back to normal. This has fundamentally changed who we are. It's changed how we work. It's changed how we sell. It's changed how we parent. It's changed how we relate to people around us in our communities. Things will change. And I certainly hope that, you know, the promising news about coronavirus is true and that we are on a road to recovery with this. But to think that we will go back to where we were in 2019 is absolutely foolish. People have reached all kinds of conclusions. They've adapted their businesses in huge ways. They've started businesses and explored new markets. We're not going back. We're only going forward. Yeah, I love that. And my last question, which is one that I ask just about every guest I have on here, what in your mind is the purpose of business? We're talking about purpose here. So what is the purpose of business? I am of the conscious capitalism philosophy and the core belief that business can be an upstanding pillar of society. I think the purpose of a business is to add value to the customers they serve, to be an equitable employer, to be a stakeholder in their community, and to leave the world better than they found it. Beautiful. Succinct. I love that. That's great. Well, Elizabeth, I really appreciate your time. You know, I, I have heard and read and everything so much about purpose and the importance of purpose. And I've even talked in, in this show before, we didn't mention it in our conversation, but about Daniel Pink's book, Drive, and about how, you know, everybody, we think people are looking for cash when they come to our workplaces, but they're really looking for autonomy, mastery, and purpose, you know, purpose being a big one. But again, it is, it's a hard topic to, to get your arms around. And so th- I think this was a fantastic conversation and there's a lot of stuff to think about if you are leading yourself and how you define your purpose, as you just said, or whether you're leading a team or whether you're leading a company. So thank you for coming on and sharing. Thank you for having me. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.